This is Island Waves, and you are listening to The Book Nook. Listening to Island Waves. Join us today as we journey along with Baroness Karen Blixen in her published memoirs, Out of Africa. Published under the nom de plume, Isaac Dennison. Come along on her journey. had a farm in Africa. I had the Church of Scotland and the mission as a neighbor 12 miles to the northwest, 500 feet higher than the farm, and the French Roman Catholic mission 10 miles to the east on the flatter land and 500 feet lower. I did not sympathize with the missions, but personally I was on friendly terms with them both and regretted that between themselves they should live in a state of hostility. The French fathers were my best friends. I used to ride over with Farrar to hear mass with them on Sunday morning, partly to enjoy speaking French again and partly because it was a lovely ride to the mission. And for a long way, the road ran through the forest department's old wattle plantation and the viral, fresh, pinaceous scent of the wattle trees was sweet and cheering in the mornings. It was an extraordinary thing to see how the Church of Rome was carrying her atmosphere with her wherever she went. The fathers had planned and built their church themselves with the assistance of their native congregation and they were the reason they were very proud of it. There were here a fine big gray church with a bell tower on it. It was laid out on a broad courtyard above terraces and stairs and in the midst of their coffee plantation, which was the oldest in the colony and very skillfully run. On the two other sides of the court were the arcaded refectory and the convent buildings with the school and the mill down by the river and To get into the drive up to the church, you had to ride over an arched bridge. It was all built in gray stone, and as you came riding down upon it, it looked neat and impressive in the landscape and might have been lying in a southern canton in Switzerland or in the north of Italy. The friendly fathers lay in wait for me at the church door when Mass was over to invite me to Un Petit Verde Divine across the courtyard in the room and in the cool refectory. 
and there. It was wonderful to hear how they knew of everything that was going on in the colony, even to the remotest concerns and corners of it. They would also, under the disguise of a sweet and benevolent conversation, draw from you any sort of news that you might possibly have in you, like a small, lively group of brown furry bees, for they all grew thick, long beards, hanging on to a flower for its store of honey. But while they were so interested in the life of the colony, they were all the time, in their own French way, exiles, patient and cheerful, obedience to some higher orders of a mysterious nature. And if it had not been for the unknown authority that kept them in the place, you felt they would not be there, neither with the Church of Greystone with the tall bell tower, nor the arcades, nor the school, or any other part of their neat plantation and mission station. For when the word of relief had been given, all of these would leave the affairs of the colony to themselves and take a beeline back to Paris. Farrah, who had been holding the two ponies while I had been to church and to the refectory on the way back to the farm, would notice my cheerful spirits, for he was himself a pious Mohammedan and did not touch alcohol, but he took the mass and the wine as coordinate rites of my own religion. The French fathers sometimes rode on their motor bicycles to the farm and lunched there, and they quoted the fables of La Fontaine to me and gave me good advice on my coffee plantation. The Scotch mission I did not know so well. There was a splendid view from up there over all surrounding Kikuyu country, but all the same, the mission station gave me an impression of blindness as if nothing itself could see. The Church of Scotland was working hard to put the natives into European clothes, which I thought did them no good from any point of view. But they had a very good hospital at the mission, and at the time while I was there, it was in the charge of philanthropic, clever-headed Dr. Arthur. They saved the life of many of the people from my farm. And at the Scotch mission, they kept Comante for three months during which time I saw him once. I came riding past the mission on my way to the Kikuyu Railway Station, and the road here for a while runs across the hospital grounds. I caught sight of Kamante on the grounds. He was standing by himself, after all, at a little distance from the group of other convalescents. And by this time, he was already so much better that he could run. And when he saw me, he came up to the fence and ran with me as long as it was following the road. He trotted along on his side of the fence like a foal in the paddock when you pass it on the horseback. And he kept his eyes on my pony, but he did not say a word. And at the corner of the hospital grounds, he had to stop. And when, as I rode on and I looked back, 
I saw him standing stock still with his head up in the air, still staring after me, in the exact manner of a fool when you ride away from it. I waved my hand to him a couple of times, the first time he did not react at all. His arm went straight up like a pumper spear, but he did not do that more than once. Comante came back to my house on the morning of Easter Sunday and handed me a letter from the hospital people who declared that he was much better and that they thought he was cured for good. He must have known something of his contents, for he watched my face attentively while I was reading it, but he did not want to discuss it, for he had greater things in his mind. Comante always carried himself with much collected or restrained dignity, but this time he shone with repressed triumph as well. All natives have a strong sense for dramatic effects. Comante had carefully teared his old bandages and tied them round his legs all the way up to his knee to arrange a surprise for me. It was quite clear that he saw the vital importance of the moment not in his own good luck, but unselfishly in the pleasure that he was about to give to me. He probably remembered the times when he had seen me all upset by the continual failure of my cures with him, and he knew that the result of the hospital's treatment was an astounding thing. And as slowly, slowly as he unwound the bandages from his knee to his heel, there appeared underneath them a pair of full, smooth legs only slightly marked by gray scars. And when Comante had thoroughly and in his calm, grand manner enjoyed my astonishment and pleasure, he again renewed the impression by stating that now he was a Christian. I am like you, he said, and he added that he thought that I might give him a rupee because Christ had risen on this very same day. He went away to call on his people, his mother was a widow and lived a long way from the farm, and from what I had heard from her later, I believe that he did upon this day make a digression from his habit and unloaded his heart to her of the impressions of strange people and ways that he had received at the hospital. But soon after his visit to his mother's hut, he came back to my home as if he took it for granted that now he belonged there. He was then in my service from this time to the time that I left the country for about 12 years. Comante, when I first met him, looked as if he was six years old, but he had a brother who looked about eight, and both brothers agreed that Comante was the eldest of them, so I suppose he must have been set back in growth by his long illness. He was probably then nine years old, and he grew up now, but he always made the impression of being a sort of dwarf or in some way deformed, although you could not put your finger on the precise spot that made him look so. 
His long, angular face was rounded with time, and he walked and moved easily. And I myself did not think him bad-looking, but I may have looked upon him with something of a creator's eyes. His legs remained forever as thin as sticks. A fantastic figure he always was, half of fun and half of diabolism, with a very slight alteration that he may have sat and stared down on top of the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. He had in him something bright and live. In a painting, he would have made a spot of unusually intense coloring. With this, he gave a stroke of picturesque to my household, and he was never quite right in the head, or at least, he was always what in a white person you would have called highly eccentric. He was a very thoughtful person. Perhaps the long years of suffering that he had lived through had developed in him a tendency to reflect upon things and to draw his own conclusions from everything that he saw. He was all his life and in his own way an isolated figure. And even when he did the same things as other people, he would do them in a very different way. I had an evening school for the people of the farm with a native schoolmaster to teach them. I got my schoolmasters from one of the missions, and in time I had all three, Roman Catholic, Church of England, and Church of Scotland schoolmasters. For the native education of the country is run rigorously on religious lines, and so far as I know, there are no other books translated into Swahili than the Bible and the hymn books. I myself, during all my time in Africa, was planning to translate Aesop's fables for the benefit of the natives, but I never found the time to carry out my plan through. Still, and such as it was, my school was to me a favorite place on the farm, the center of our spiritual life, and I spent many pleasant evening hours in the old storehouse of corrugated iron in which it was kept. Clemente would then come with me, but he would not join the children on the school benches. He would stand a little away from them, as if consciously closing his ears to the learning and exulting in the simplicity of those who consented to be taken in and to listen. But in the privacy of my kitchen, I have seen him copying from memory very slowly and very preposterously those same letters and figures that he had observed on the blackboard that day in the school. I do not think that he could have come in with other people if he had wanted to. Early in his life, something in him had been twisted or locked, and now it was, so to say, so to keep him in the normal thing, to be out of the normal. He was aware of the separateness of him, himself, with the arrogant greatness of soul of the real child, who when he finds himself at a difference with the whole world, holds the world to be crooked.
Palmonte was very shrewd in money matters. He spent little and he did a number of wise deals with the other Kikuyu in goats. He married at a very early age, and marriage in the Kikuyu world is an expensive undertaking. At the same time, I have heard him philosophizing soundly and originally upon the worthlessness of money. He stood in a peculiar relation to existence on the whole. He mastered it, but he had no high opinion of it. Kamante had no gift whatsoever for admiration. He, he might acknowledge and think well of the wisdom of animals, but there was, during all the time that I knew him, only one human being of whose good sense I heard him speak approvingly. And that was a very young Somali woman who had some years later come to live on the farm. He had a little mocking laughter of which he made use in all circumstances, but chiefly towards any self-confidence or grandiosence in other people. All natives have in them a strong strain of malice, a shrill of delight in things gone wrong, which in itself is hurting and revolting to Europeans. Commenté brought this characteristic to a rare perfection, even to a special self-irony that made him take pleasure in his own disappointments and disasters, nearly exactly as in those of other people. I have met with the same kind of mentality in the old native women who have been roasted over many fires and who have mixed blood with fate and recognized her Arnie wherever they need it with sympathy, as if it were that of a sister. And on the farm, I used to let my houseboys deal out snuff, that is tobacco, the natives say to the old women on Sunday mornings while I myself was still in bed. And on this account, I had a very queer lot of customers around my house on Sundays, like a very old, rumpled, bald, and bony poultry yard, and their low cockling for the natives were still rarely speaking up loudly, and it made its way through the open windows of my bedroom. And on one particular Sunday morning, the gentle, lively flow of Kikuyu communications suddenly rose to ripples and cascades of mirth. Some highly humorous incident was taking place out there, and I called in Farrar to tell me about it. Farrar did not like to tell me, for the matter was what he had forgotten to buy the snuff, so that today the old woman had come a long way, as they say themselves, booty for nothing. This happening was later on a source of amusement to the old Kikuyu women. Sometimes, when I met one of them on a path in the, in the maize field, she would stand still in front of me and poke out a, a crooked bony finger at me, and with her old dark face dissolving into laughter so that all the wrinkles of it were drawn and folded together as by one single secret string being pulled, she would remind me of the Sunday when she and her sisters, in the snuff, had walked and walked to my home only to find that we had forgotten to get it and there was not a grain there. That was a source of great laughter among the Masabu women. The white people often say 
of the Kikuyu that they know nothing of gratitude. Kamante, in any case, was not ungrateful, and he had given his words to his feelings of an obligation. A number of times, many years after our first meeting, he went out of his way to do me a service for which I had not asked him, and when I asked him why he had done it, he said that if it had not been for me, he would have been dead a long time ago. He showed his gratitude in other manners as well, and in a particular kind of benevolent, helpful, or perhaps the right word is forbearing attitude towards me. It may be that he kept in mind that he and I were of the same religion. And in a world of fools, I was, I think, to him, one of the greater fools. From the day when he came into my service and attached his fate to mine, I felt his watchful penetrating eyes upon me and my whole modus vivendi subject to a clear unbiased criticism. I believe that from the beginning he looked upon the trouble that I had taken to get him cured as a piece of hopeless eccentricity. But he showed me all the time, great interest and sympathy, and he laid himself out to guide my great ignorance. And on some occasions, I found that he had given time and thought to the problem and that he meant to prepare and illustrate his instructions in order that it should be easier for me to understand. You've been listening to Out of Africa, the published memoirs of Baroness Karen Blixen. Join us again on the Book Nook as we continue our journey together out of Africa, here on Island Waves, the voice of Prince Edward Island. <laughs>